1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. Thank you for listening. I'm Bruce Daisley. Hit me up on uh, Twitter, endorse me on LinkedIn. You can do uh, all of those things. Really good guest today. If you're going to make work more enjoyable, you need to think about how you bring more creative ideas into day to day work. So I wanted to look at that. And I guess, you know, if you wanted to call it something lofty, you'd call it system thinking. I was thinking, how can we redesign work? The reason why is we've heard over these few episodes recently that you need to think about how you design things. One of the things that's clear is that if you're thinking about jobs going forward... Creativity and innovation are a really critical component. I read something, I might have mentioned it on one of these, that jobs under £20 an hour are going to be automated in 10 years' time, which is simultaneously sort of terrifying, and, and also it's something that's incredibly hard to get your head around. But obviously, as alarming as that is, it reminds us that the one thing that humans are still best at is ideas and creativity, putting ideas together in different ways. So if you're thinking about the future of work, it's not just about getting a job done, a thing sold, a thing promoted getting some press coverage for something is about coming up with new ideas. And the companies that are the most imaginative, the most inventive, are those ones that have the best chance of winning. If you sit in the middle of a company today, what can you do to make your work more creative? And one of the best people I thought to talk to is today's guest. Joey Ito runs the Media Lab at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And at MIT, the Media Lab has been at the cutting edge of technological innovation since it was founded by Nicholas Negroponte over 30 years ago. The precursor to Google Street View came from there, scratch computer language, loads of Lego innovations were all catalyzed by the team at Media Lab. The current client list is the stuff of dreams. But their impact goes beyond that and it's become a destination for those who want to study at the cutting edge of innovation and technology. Even better than that, Joey, when he took over the Media Lab, had sort of design, redesigned their structures, make them get back to being innovative, being leading edge. So here's why I wanted to chat to Joey. I heard him talking to the author Stephen Johnson. And he was talking about how we learn and the process of how we learn, being vital for work, how we come up with ideas and how we innovate. Because we don't learn by watching people's PowerPoint bullet points and reading them. We learn by experiencing things. So at the Media Lab, they've really had to think about how can they teach things through this experiential process of learning, sort of play really and joking about things, playing with things, imagining things. So me and Joey have a, a discussion, partly inspired by the book that Joey's just written, Whiplash with Jeff Howe. Whiplash is about how to survive the accelerating future of work. Our discussion leads into to multiple places. We talk about the emerging models of innovation that you can see in like pirate mobile phone factories in China. We discuss how the best ideas come from moments of play. So here he is, here's Joey Eater. one of the things I wanted to understand was, in a world governed by routines, by 10 meetings a week, by 200 emails a day, how do we find the space for new ideas? Someone once said to me, beware the busy manager. It's gone beyond that now, hasn't it? It's like, beware the busy everyone. There's no space for thought, no space for, for for anything to fill the gaps with daydreaming. One of the things I wanted your view on is the idea of play. I've observed that when, when I play a game with other people, I feel energised and more creative. And I wonder your take on it if we're trying to design a new world of work is play important i think play is
3: essential um for uh the kind of creativity that we're interested in because play so play i think you you can you, you can try to break down play in a different different ways but when when human beings have um reactions like disgust or anger they're all some kind of survival trait but the idea of like laughter or sort of fun is interestingly probably connected to these learning moments when you get like an aha is is kind of this moment of surprise and excitement and to because normally we don't like to be surprised but when the surprise is connected to something that's wonderfully useful for creativity and learning where we enjoy it and play also is something that could be otherwise somewhat combative but if you're in a secure feeling like when you're playing with your dog you know you it might look to the outside like you're fighting but you're actually in play because you both trust each other that you're not trying to kill each other but you're actually playful So when you're in a lab and you're, you know, asking somebody or poking somebody, if you have a playful mood, it's quite easy to be critical of each other because you're sort of jousting um, and you're not trying to eliminate your opponent. You're trying to make them stronger. You're trying to learn and you're trying to be creative. And so play is, I think, a really important way to also wrap actually sometimes difficult interactions in a comfortable, respectful way. And so 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 humor is like that, too. um Bertunde Thurston was one of my directors fellows, and he's a very funny guy. He wrote for the onion and 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 he's um and he used to be a very serious black activist at harvard and and not a funny guy. And he said he learned comedy because then he could deliver really difficult things wrapped in comedy. and and it, John Stewart's the same thing. They can often say things directly at the camera that you wouldn't be able to say with a straight face. So I think also humor is a great interface for very difficult. To digest messages and then and then the 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 other piece about play i think is important is um, and there are some studies that show this is when you're focused and you're motivated by anxiety fear or money um, you can move very quickly and efficiently through somewhat linear brute force processes but when you have to step back and try to explore a creative space this uh, play is really an important Mindset to be in and and I would add to that the somewhat mischievous culture which ties to disobedience um, Is the idea of of trying to come up with hacks that are clever or funny um, Also lead to a really interesting uh, form of creativity I mean, I think a lot of the really interesting Projects that I see at the media lab start out as kind of a joke, but then they turn out to be actually um, pretty functional and, um, and and real but but in order to create a a um, environment of play Um, I I think we get back to the culture thing. Um, I think it's 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 not super straightforward. You can't just tell people to be playful. You, You have to model it. You have to give people the confidence, one, that 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 you're that there's there's space to do it. But also the the, the the right kind of encouragement to do it.
2: You talk about the change of innovation and how innovation is happening. The, the most vivid part, that I thought, was the description you gave of the Chinese mobile factories in Shenzhen. These sort of crazy pirate spaces where new phones are invented almost on the fly. For, for people who've never been there, could you evoke the scene?
3: So one of my favorite trips most recently was a trip that I made to Shenzhen. I went with uh, a couple of my students and uh, one of my favorite researchers, um, Bunny Wong and our provost and um, and and Shenzhen is really one of those places that you you it's very difficult to imagine and you really have to be there so I'll try to explain but but it's first of all the, the image that people have of Chinese factories is a kind of a stereotyped image of a peculiar particular set of factories. the factories that the students our students and Bunny and we work with are a uh, category of factories that most people don't think of when they think of Chinese factories. So when you go, uh, the, the, the person who's in charge of the factory lives in the factory, everybody lives in the factory, at least all the people that we know there are happy, they eat meals together, they, we sit around and have these wonderful conversations about uh, manufacturing and design. And, and you know one of the uh, uh, people that we worked with was this uh, uh, young woman who had eight months ago just been working in a textiles factory but was applying a lot of what she had learned into electronics. And and in these little small factories, what you get is you get bits and pieces of, you know, a little bit of Nintendo run here, a little bit of an Apple run here. So you think when you think of sort of Chinese factories, you might imagine these huge monolithic factories where, you know, you've got these like robots just running this machine. But in fact, what it is, is this amazing web of thousands of factories, each with their Particular talents and the particular skills, and when you go in and you say, you know, I want to make a flexible printed circuit board. Have you ever done that? They'll say, no, but we could maybe do this. And my aunt over there has this process that can do that. My uncle over there might be able to help you with this. And before you know it, by the end of the day, you've invented a completely new manufacturing process to design something that's never been designed before. And one of the things that we deployed from the lab was circuit stickers that were designed by a young researcher at our at our lab named M. G. And she, you know, wanted to create a. a a way to stick circuits onto uh, a notepad and then be able to draw lines with conductive ink and allow little girls or parents or whoever to be able to just draw and have circuits that worked, and she needed these adhesive circuit stickers, so she went to Shenzhen, and probably only in Shenzhen could she have figured out how to not only produce these but produce these at scale so that she could get them out into the world at a low enough price so that thousands of people could use them and then give her the kind of feedback on the research that she was interested in so so sitting on the in, in these in these factories you know you're you're with these people who are um bringing expertise both from other industries, but also they've been sitting there making uh, uh, phones for every single phone manufacturer uh, around. And so when, when our student says, you know, well, I wonder how you might do the surge protection, um, in order to meet the safety guidelines for Western markets. Well, they say, well, there's probably three or four ways to do it, um, but because they've been watching how all of these other um, companies do it, and they'll give our guys and girls advice on all this stuff. And so what's, what's, what's fascinating is the one, the extent of um, manufacturing knowledge that's there on the factory floor Two, the fact that these each of these factories is like a family with lots of people who hang around, and you know they're not. First of all, most of them, not all of them, but most of them enjoy their work. Uh, most of them are saving up lots of money because they don't have to buy clothes, they don't have to buy food, and they don't buy cheap cell phones. They're buying original iPhones. And and the and then and then the the other interesting thing is because everything is sort of in proximity with everything else, um, they never say no. They when you say I, I need a a cable that's exactly this long with this connector and a flexible circuit board everybody's like okay well, let's figure out how to do that and with within walking distance you can often in most cases figure out how to do anything so it's this, it's this amazing place where manufacturing and innovation have come together and it really is kind of a silicon valley for hardware and what's what's interesting is there you know there's obviously some parallels and some differences between um hardware and software and software you can have the linux developers can be all over the world and can be working together on the linux kernel the difficulty with hardware is you kind of have to be there and face to face so so there's a real value to the physical proximity of everybody being close together but also there's a um you know in in the west we had free and open source software in shenzhen there's a a different style it's not i mean it's. I mean, I think some people may just shake their finger at it and say they're disrespectful of intellectual property. Um, I will point out, in fact, that if you go all the way back to the early Silicon Valley when they were making computer chips, a lot of the engineers did, in fact, behind the scenes across competitors, share a lot of information. And I think that for the development of really important ecosystems, the fact that people um, in Silicon Valley can leave one company and go to another company is a really important way for knowledge to mix across companies, even though they have lawyers. But in, but in Shenzhen, what's amazing is if all of the manufacturing knowledge from all these different, building these different companies coming together, and so so, so, so there's that piece, which is the, the the ingenuity and the fact that the manufacturing engineers are all there, You know, I'd like to tell another story just because it's a great story. Um, I mean, the the other thing that um, sort of blew my mind was Bunny took us to the market where everything is on sale. And so when you go there, um, first of all, Lots of factories are in the business of making iPhones or parts for iPhones. So it makes sense that when you make a big printed circuit board and three out of the eight are bad, they throw them away. Well, somebody picks them up and cuts out the parts that work, you know? And so all the way along the process of building a phone, You have parts or sets of parts that don't work. So you go to this section of the market, which is for iPhones and everything from the little button that you push to a nearly complete iPhone and every state of build between, you can find iPhone pieces. And then on the street, you find people with piles and piles of bricked iPhones flicking all the parts into little bins as they sort of munch on a McDonald's hamburger. And then they take these bins full of um, the chips that still work because they test them all, and then they put them back onto these tapes. So, in in a in a, on, for printed circuit boards in these factories, they use these uh, machines that sort of automatically put the components onto the PCBs. And the way that they feed all of the components into these machines are these long tapes. So you buy resistors and and chips. In these factory for these factories on these reels but a lot of these reels are reels of literally little tiny parts that are flicked off of broken phones into little containers and then somebody putting them back onto a tape and then a factory saying oh we're out of part a b and c they go to the market and they buy a bunch of these junk parts and stick them back into the phone and so on the one hand you have all these broken phones and all these different things and then so so I would bet that almost any phone that you have in your pocket actually has some recycled parts in it and it's this amazing Amazing ecosystem, and so so the, the the funny thing is with you know we were wandering around and we saw this and and there are all these phones that are just built in in there some of them are called shans phones or sort of pirate phones there's one phone that had this particular chip that was very rare. Uh, one of our companions said hey, they can't use this chip this chip is only licensed to be used in this particular phone They said you know what they probably didn't buy these cheap chips illegally they probably found a bunch of broken phones they got flicked out they had the schematics and they built it into the thing and so so it's it's, it's a very different way of thinking about hardware when just about any part and even the illegal schematics for all the phones that are being manufactured are available and people are able to hack these things together so so it's it's you know a lot of what you're talking about leads into this big
2: concept you have of culture of innovation moving from push to pull can you talk through push to pull
3: yeah so you know i i I think that uh, um a lot of the principles in my book are all kind of about the same thing you know and what happens is when you are able to move things and information and connect the collaboration, the uh, distribution and the coordination all over the world at real time at nearly no cost, comparatively speaking, you have the ability to harness the emergent nature of innovation of of systems. And so, you know, when in the old days, when you weren't, connected you you had to plan really far ahead you know you you would say you know i will meet you um on the third moon of next winter at that um at that inn up the top of the hill and once you decided that you you couldn't change your mind that was when you were going to see this person next but now when you log on and fire up your chat client or jump into the irc channel or go onto facebook you can see everybody's availability and you can say you know um, uh, uh, Hal is online and Mary is online and I've got this thing I have and maybe they're the right people to, to, to drag into this. And, you know, there's a little bit of randomness, but in fact, randomness is sort of the, 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 the precursor to serendipity and serendipity is, uh, is tremendously interesting and valuable in a lot of ways. One, one, there was a great, uh, New York times article, I think a couple years ago that said that, you know, half of all inventions are, by accident and it's actually no accident. So so it turns out, I think when you think about um, discovery or innovation as, as, a, as a result of a search, let's let's say. Um, so, so there's the old saying, everybody looks for their keys under the uh, lamppost, cause that's where the light is. So when you think about disciplines or you think about markets or you think about, you know a bunch of a similar people trying to find the solution to a similar problem, they're gonna tend to look in the same place in the same way. And there's a lot of low hanging fruit or whatever metaphor you want to use um, in those neglected spaces. And often those neglected spaces are just a glance to the side. And so when we talk about focus and plans, um, what it also means is that you're sure sort of shutting down your peripheral vision and saying, no, I just need to make sure I get to my goal. I don't care whether they're daisies by the road or whether I see my friend crossing the road over there, you just need to get to where you're going. And in many cases, that's important when you're rushing to the hospital or when you know exactly what you wanna do, you only have a certain amount of time, execution and focus is very important. But when you're exploring, when you're thinking, when you're trying to be creative, the ability to open up your peripheral vision is tremendously important but also this idea of the power of pull. So to sort of bring it back to uh, Shenzhen, you know, there may be dozens of ways to get to a particular endpoint, but by brainstorming and running into each other and sort of running around the market and looking at things, um, you start to get so many different ideas on the paths to get there. And the other thing that's really important is sort of using the metaphor of sort of opening up your your chat client or whatever, you get the resources that are available now. uh, Actually, you can find a lot of this uh, originates from the uh, just-in-time manufacturing of the Japanese car companies back in the day when they were trying to lower inventory by having things show up just when they needed them rather than stocking a whole bunch of inventory. Because the problem is if you stock a whole bunch of inventory and you decide that there's an error or you want to change the model or you want to do something different, you can't because you've got all this inventory if you're pulling things just as you need them you don't have that inventory risk and you're able to be agile because you can say you know what, we're going to change the design here we're going to change the part here or we just had a earthquake in japan this part is no longer available how do we redesign the iphone using parts that are available and that kind of agility comes with this uh this uh, pullover push um this this real-time nature and so um for instance, when we we did this thing called SafeCast, which was a project that we started um, after the uh, earthquake in Japan, uh, a number of us were concerned um, because the government and the power company weren't uh, giving us very good information about the uh, the radioactive cloud that was sort of dispersing uh uh, waste around japan and so a bunch of us got together and we found some people that were good at mapping we found some people that understood um uh high voltage uh, electronics to make geiger counters we found some people that knew a lot about geiger counters and within a month we were able to find you know a Team and a ID, uh, person idea doing the maps, a uh, person who had worked on Three Mile Islands uh, monitoring system afterwards, and and we were, be able, were able to put together a a, a a group that could design a geiger mobile geiger counter, put a website together, figure out how to do the measurements, get a bunch of volunteers in cars and r- r- drive all over Japan. Over sixty million data points now, um, and with almost no money. Starting after the fact, we were more successful than any NGO or any government, but it literally was going onto mailing lists and looking for these people who were available, who happened to know exactly the right skills that we needed, and then being able to coordinate with them at nearly no cost. And so so, um, I guess the last thing I will say on this point is sort of a lot of assets on your balance sheet, whether they're lines of code or printing presses or patents um, are all assets, but they're liabilities for pivoting. So if you've ever been in a product meeting with engineers, um, and you've done a two week sprint and you roll out a new product and you say, that's not working. You know, like, um, YouTube in 2005 was a dating site with video. So you can imagine that meeting where they're sitting there and say, you know, I'm, you know, the default was I mail between eight, uh, uh, eight 18 and 35 or 15 and 35 upload video. This isn't working. Um, all the engineers have put blood and sweat into this or don't want you to dump the code and pivot. But somehow you, you've got to figure out what the next thing is. And so the longer you've spent building and planning and stocking, the lot less likely you are to be able to pivot. If you're a big company that's you know who has a vice president of video dating and you've you've hired a thousand people and you've patented a million things, you're gonna say, ah, oh, let's try it a little bit longer. Whereas if you're a startup that's only spent two weeks on it, you're gonna say, you know what, let's let's try something else. Let's become, uh, let's go jump on and become the video embeds for for MySpace because the Google guys aren't moving fast enough. And so so in a world where things are changing very quickly, this uh, lack of dependence on the inventory, this ability to pull the freshest people and the freshest idea when you need them, and then to be able to embrace serendipity rather than sticking to plan, that, it be- that becomes, a it, again, fo- I, I don't wanna diminish the need for focus and execution in some phases, but be, but to be able to pull back and, and, and harness serendipity and, 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 and speed is a tremendously important uh, survival piece of, uh, of of these days, I think.
2: What I'm inspired by, by MIT is how you incorporate these things into your DNA. One thing you talk about at the Media Lab is the difference between disobedience and criticism. You don't, one of your phrases is you don't win a Nobel Prize by doing what you're told. And you really tried to bake these things into the Media Lab's culture. Can you talk about that?
3: Yeah. So so the interesting thing about the Media Lab is the Media Lab was 31 years old and it was created before the internet was really a real thing. It was before the Macintosh computer and before a lot of these other things. So the culture of the Media Lab has always been extremely disobedient, extremely sort of, people jokingly called it, you know, the department of none of the above. Um, so, you know, we often use the word anti-disciplinary, which is that it, it was sort of the the place where all the stuff that didn't fit in anywhere else but still seemed like it was worth doing would show up. You know, what's what's fascinating is that the Media Lab played a fairly significant role in the early days of the personal computer and the internet, A lot of the early messaging came from um, ideas and email ideas came from um, the Media Lab and the community around it. And when I joined the Media Lab six years ago, what I found was that my experience coming from the internet and being an internet entrepreneur were very similar to the DNA and the ethos that we had at the Media Lab. So so a lot of the ideas that I have aren't particularly new to the Media Lab but reinforce a lot of the DNA that's always been there. Currently at the Media Lab we we probably have over 400 projects, over 85 sponsors that range from Lego to, you know, Google to Toyota. And, you know, we have just a a huge variety of of projects, but a couple of things I think companies might find unique. One is no one has ever had to ask permission from me to do anything. And so one thing that I would say is there's a huge cost of permission. So if you're an engineer or a designer and you're sitting around on a lazy afternoon and you say, you know, wouldn't it be cool if on the Media Lab, what it is is a mailing list conversation. Somebody saying, remember that episode in Star Trek where by the end of the day, they're in the shop building the thing. They're on the computer coding the thing. And in the evening, they've got photos of it up and say, hey, is this a thing? Should we? Should I do this as a project? And everybody's like, hey, what about this? Have you thought about that? And and a good project will, one, be kind of an emergent idea that often comes out of either faculty and students talking to each other. We have the tools and the capability to basically start anything without really additional funding, which is the key part, is you can have high degrees of permissionless innovation, which is what a lot of internet innovation was, if the cost of innovation is low enough that you don't have to ask anybody for money. And then eventually when the thing gets big enough, you know, the companies and VCs and others will come pour money in. So there's a parallel here to the internet so if you think about google facebook yahoo they all had their initial products before they raised money and the vcs came after they saw some version of what was going on and the reason they didn't need any money is they were able to use the university internet off-the-shelf pc linux um uh, mysql you know most of the stack that they needed was already free or very, very low cost. If you think before the internet, so this is, if there's a great book called Regional Advantage by um, Annalise Saxenian, which talks about how uh, Boston and, and um, this region uh, lost its advantage in computers to Silicon Valley, because when it costs a lot of money to do any innovation, then you needed authority, you needed approval systems, you needed proposals, you needed uh, lots of institutions. But when anybody could build an idea, and it was about VCs chasing down kids who had ideas that were already built, and then the business models would come later, um, then you could sort of in- invert the thing. And so that's what happened on the internet. And I think what's interesting, about the evolution of the Media Lab is that I think the early MIT Media Lab stuff, when the early time-sharing computers were around and a lot of a lot of the tools were pretty expensive and hard to get, so everybody being physically here at MIT made sense. So it was kind of this place where you had access to all these things. I think what's changed the most is that now, since the cost of innovation has gone down so much, we're able to, first of all, be part of a broader network, so try to connect to other things outside, but also the, the permissionlessness is easier to do just because you don't you don't need to gather all the resources um, beforehand.
0: Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh! Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello.
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: I saw you wrote a blog post. It was heartening, actually. I saw you wrote a blog post which was sort of wrestling with the requirements to do six hours of emails a day and the consequent trade-offs we all wrestle with, giving partial attention to other things. Do you see an easy solution to that? How you can manage meetings and emails, the overwhelming volume of work that's coming?
3: Yeah, so so the the, the question I think is about my blog posts where I basically throw up my hands saying, I don't know what to do about the fact that I have so much email and so many meetings and, and I'm, I, I end up having to give partial attention during meetings and I feel disrespectful and I really don't know what to do. And I've tried so many different ways to both, deal with my email and try to sort out the meeting thing and you know i have like three people reading my emails already helping me i've 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 tried many things many tools as well but i think the most useful comment that i got was um from ray Ozzie, um who you know the developer of lotus and um and lotus knows at microsoft and he he and i i i I love ray he's he's always very thoughtful and and obsesses about these sorts of particular things and so and he said you know you're you're doing you're thinking about it the wrong way what what you need to do and it's really hard is you need to get to the point where you are getting through your inbox every day because it's just a you just think about it as a flow problem if you have more stuff coming in than you can deal with every day that means you're going to continue to have more stuff piling up and you just need to figure out how to get that now that could be start saying no to more things create more bandwidth for taking care of things delegating but in but as long as you're creating a massive to-do list that grows faster than you're getting rid of it it's just like you know you're going to be bankrupt all the time which i sometimes did i would i sometimes declare meg email bankruptcy and just delete my whole inbox and say that on twitter but but that doesn't really it doesn't solve the 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 flow problem so so i've been trying and i've started resigning from boards trying to cut my meeting criteria tighter and tighter and tighter, it's still, I'm still not there. But I have, um, you know, one of the one of the things in my blog post was should I have some meetings where I don't use any devices and I'm fully present, and some meetings where there are sort of cheaper meetings, so pe- if people need my time sooner but are willing to, for partial attention, I divide it into two types of meeting types. I think I've decided that I will pay proper attention in all of my meetings but I will try to reduce the number of meetings now that says that means saying no to a whole bunch more things than I have in the past um, it means making a lot more people unhappy but it also as I've started thinking about it is how do I and how should I be prioritizing things and, and again there are a lot of great help self-help books on how to prioritize but I think you know the thing that I want to tune is I could easily see my schedule completely full of um, regular meetings with people I already have to work with but then the problem with that is then you have no serendipity you have none of the stuff that we've been talking about this whole podcast so so I think that the trick is to how do you create a distribution of enough randomness enough uh, young people who don't yet have enough of a background to be able to be impressive and how do you then also Add to that the operational things that are need the triage and the and the and the priority, and that's really hard and I think different people prioritize very differently um you know one of my best friends reed hoffman um uh he's a master at uh, certain types of scale, but he has this weird philosophy which i don't really agree with, but, but is he's, he calls it let fires burn. You know, he talks about this famous story where at PayPal, where there were just so much problems that the customer service was ringing off the phone and people just stopped answering the phones until they kind of got past a certain thing. And then they started answering the phones again. And for him, hyper focus on the top priority is the way he's been able to scale these things, which makes sense in a venture sort of situation where you can't take your eye off the, the ball. And this is about focus, right? On the other hand, when you're in exploration mode, or if you're trying to build a personal network, you can't just let every fire burn. So, so it's so different. People have different philosophies. I'm still searching for the right um, prioritization philosophy, and, and and so I guess I would finish by saying that that's those are the two pieces. One is the ability to create a uh, a machine. In my case, my support team, my technology so that you can execute on whatever prioritization philosophy you have so that you can change it and still function and then you have to have a rigorous or a thoughtful prioritization philosophy so that the people in your system know what sorts of things you'll spend time on and what sorts of things you don't and that you yourself can do that and and then there's a bunch of theories on how to do that but 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 I'm I haven't gotten there but I'm I'm committed now to trying to get to a point where um I, I am able to so, so so, for every no and every yes, um, that it is the result of a, it could have randomness involved, but even the randomness is there intentionally.
2: So that was Joey Ito. Thank you to Joey. His book Whiplash is out now. I audio booked it, of course. There's lots of good episodes coming up. So do uh, follow us on Twitter. Search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Tell your friends, tell your husbands, tell your mama. See you next time.
0: Bye.